I made a bit of an error. Uh, it's not ver- chapter 15, verse 1 is the context, but uh, we're going to start at verse 11. So 15:11 in the sermon today. The parable of the lost son. Give you a moment to find it. Uh, 15:11 of Luke. Yeah. Okay, church, uh, good morning. Let's stand and read Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with my hunger. I will get up and I'll go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours is dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has now been found. Let's pray. We look forward, Lord, to diving into this parable. My prayer for the church, Lord, is that every single person here learns something new, and see something new that they've never seen before, so that they can go out and live life the way you desire them to. We don't want to accumulate knowledge just to look intelligent and to have 
be, be the smartest one in Bible study or smartest, smartest one in the pastoral group. We want this to impact our lives so that we make changes so that we can emulate the younger son and be careful not to be the older son and to understand you and the way you relate to people in a greater way. Give us ears to hear and the hearts to understand your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're tackling what will be our fifth parable in our sermon series. And we know this to be called the prodigal son or the lost son, because that's what the word prodigal means, is lost. Now, not only is this parable one of the longest uh, parables in the, actually it is his longest parable, it's probably also the most famous and familiar as well. Now, remember the purpose of parables. We've learned this, that a parable is to to teach a spiritual truth by way of comparison through a fictional story. That's the purpose. Now what makes this one really unique is that even though there's one main lesson, there's important secondary lessons that, are, that we don't want to miss today. And so for my prayer for us today is that we, don't, uh, we discover those truths in a clear manner. So again, we have to begin as we always do by uncovering the context. Get the context right, good chance we'll get the parable right. Look at 15.1. 15.1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The scene is simple but important. Pharisees and the scribes are condemning Jesus for his association with tax collectors and sinners. He's receiving them and eating with them. Now within the Jewish culture, uh, these are considered the lowlifes of the nation. They're despised and rejected. Tax collectors, of course, hated because uh, of their associations with the Romans, because the Romans would employ Jewish people to collect taxes from their own Jewish people. So the Roman government would tax them, the Jews, hired Jewish people to be the tax collectors to bring in the money, and of course, they were seen as traitors. How dare they work for the enemy, the Romans? And they were committing treason in that way. And also because they were crooks. They were typically known for skimming off the top and charging their own people more money than than Romans were actually asking for. So tax collectors were often wealthy, seen as traitors, and committing treason. Sinners often were considered the riffraff of society, known as the most immoral people. These would include the prostitutes and people like criminals and so on. These were people apparently that, according to my studies, weren't even allowed in the Jewish synagogues. You would never find a tax collector or a prostitute or criminal in a synagogue. They were excommunicated from that life. That'd be like kicking someone out of Genesis house, to give you a comparison. So again, these men and women who were in these categories were completely rejected and despised by Jewish culture, yet Jesus is in their midst, ministering to them, giving them the gospel, having table fellowship with them, you know, having dinners, eating meals, and so on and so forth, and even teaching them as a Jewish rabbi. You see, Jesus had known why he'd come. He knew what his mission was. 
He had come to seek and save the lost. And these people were included in God's economy. This is the context in which Jesus gives three parables. In verse 3, he gives the parable of the lost sheep. And in verse 8, he gives the parable of the lost coin. And beginning in verse 11, he gives the parable of the lost son. Now what's key in all of these, the first two parables, or the all, well, all three, but especially the first two, is the joy that it brings God when the lost people are found. In other words, when sinners repent. That's the context. The joy that brings God when sinners repent. Look at verse 7. This shepherd who's had a hundred sheep has lost one. The shepherd finds the sheep and look at the response in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. With With the parable of the lost coin, the woman has 10 coins, loses one, and she finds it. Look at verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, it's important to say that the first two parables have to do with the joy that it brings the Lord when sinners repent. Because there are various interpretations of what this parable is about in the Christian community. I was reminded of this this week. I had a conversation with Rob, a conversation with Roger, and both of them said, oh, it'll be interesting to basically hear what you have to say because I've heard different interpretations. And that's exactly true. I, uh, some think this is a parable on eternal security. Some people think this is a, a parable on a, 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 a Christian who goes backwards, kind of backslides and goes wayward and comes back to his faith later in life. I'm going to tell you straight up, that has nothing to do with the parable. That is not what the parable of the lost son is, is about. The context makes it clear. When one sinner who is not connected to God repents, there's joy. That's the context of verse 7. That's the context of verse uh, 10. That will be the context of verse 11. This has to do with a sinner who never knew God, who comes to full relationship with him, and there's joy in that. This is very important we understand this. Because Jesus is, again, giving the parable in response to the Pharisees and scribes who say, why are you hanging out with sinners who don't know God? Why are you hanging out with tax collectors who don't know God? Why are you doing that? You are a fool to do that. Where's God's purposes as the Messiah in that? If you truly are the Messiah, why are you missing the Messiah's mission? You don't hang out with people like that. That's the context. That's clear, cut, and dry. So let's dive in. Verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. If you lived in the land of Israel uh, back then, when Jesus told this parable, you would realize how insulting this request was from the younger brother. This comes when we understand how inheritance laws worked in the land of Israel back in the day. In Deuteronomy 21 verse 17, the firstborn, the eldest son, was to receive a double portion of the father's estate. A case, so in a case where there were only two sons, as, if this, as in this parable, the younger would receive one-third of the estate. So when the younger son asked for a th- uh, his inheritance, he was asking for a significant amount of wealth, one-third of the estate. 
Now, we can tell that this father is very, very wealthy by, some of the, by what he has at the end. When we see how, you know, he's got, he's got, he has this massive feast, this massive celebration, invites tons of people. He's got, you know, food, robes, rings. He's got, he's, this guy's got a ton of cash on him, a ton of wealth. So he had a healthiest inheritance to earn. But here's what's important. The way in which you would normally receive your inheritance was the same way you would do today. Upon the death of your father, that's normally when you'd receive it, or by his initiative. Here, the younger son, son did not wait for either. He asked for his inheritance while the father was still alive, which has been a real insult. He's almost like saying to his dad, I wish you were dead, right? You're as good as dead to me because I want my money from you now. And he also was the one who didn't even wait for his father to initiate to him as well. He demanded it of his father. Could you imagine those of you who have, who have parents still alive going up to your, parent, your dad and saying, Dad, I'd like my inheritance now, please. Even if you knew he had one for you, you wouldn't even have the gall to do that. So this is a very insulting way, thing to do. And that's why it's so important because the father still gave it to him anyway. He gave it to him anyway, despite the insult. Now, the situation might have been somewhat redeemable if a younger son put his inheritance to good use. Maybe if he invested it, started his own business, continued to take care of the family, whatever it may be. But in verse 13, we learn this is not the case. In verse 13 says, And not many days later, the youngest son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, a couple observations I don't want you to miss. First one is how selfish and self-serving he was, and how his continued actions showed a disdain for his dad. First, notice that he left after not many days. In other words, this guy couldn't wait to take the money and run. If he left, he left pretty much right away after receiving the inheritance. So he had no care about the impact of his decisions on his dad and the rest of the family. He just couldn't wait to get out of Dodge. And the fact that he went to a distant country showed that he wanted to get as far away from his home and far, far away from his father as possible. That was his whole intent. He could have maybe come to a neighboring community or neighboring place. He went to a distant country, get away from dad as far as he could. Second, look at, notice what he spent it on. He spent it on loose living. This guy spent it on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He was the guy you'd find waving the lighter at Woodstock and basically living that party out. Again, he's not looking to put the inheritance to good use. He wants to pursue a life of pleasure, indulge his flesh, and do whatever makes him feel good. That was his whole purpose in life. And we know he must have had a good, good life. <laughs> a good, he partied hard. Verse 14, he had spent everything. He spent everything. Not a dime was left of that inheritance. And the problem was, this guy wasn't prepared for the unforeseen disaster that was about to change his life drastically. And in verse 14, after he'd spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. He began to be impoverished. Sin always has its consequences. For this guy, blowing his entire estate on the high life meant that when tragedy hit, there was no way for him to provide for himself. Remember, there's no visa cards in those days. 
There's no line of credits. There's no government welfare. There's no government forgiving you when you go into bankruptcy. The only option for this guy was to starve or get a menial job in hopes that it would provide enough so that he wouldn't die. And that's exactly what he did in verse 15. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything to eat. When we read this as a Westerner, it's hard for us to see the desperation of this man's situation. But when you view it through Jewish lens, you see how bad the situation is. Pat Jensen always talks about how his favorite book in the Bible is Leviticus. Um, it was very easy to understand and very interesting read and he just loves the truth that just abounds to him as he reads that book. Well, according to Leviticus 11.26, pigs were forbidden for Jews to eat. The result was you never saw pig farmers in the land of Israel. You don't today either. We toured the whole nation in February, not one pig to be found. They're unclean. You don't associate with swine. The pig is right up there in terms of the most detestable animal to a devout Jew. And yet here's this guy, the only job he can get to save his life is to work with pigs. He's so desperate, so hungry, he'll even eat the pig's food. But no one will even give him food, even give him the pig's food because the pigs are more important than he is. You notice that? No one was giving anything to eat. You're in a famine. It's better that the pigs live than him. Because if you're in a famine, the pigs have to give you food to keep you going. The pigs are more important than this guy. That's how low this guy is getting. Can you understand the depth of despair? How far his life has gone because of the poor choices he's made? Going as far away from the father as possible. Insulting his father by asking for inheritance. Getting a job with pigs because he's blown it all on loose living. Life can't get any worse for this guy. The consequences of his sin and his life choices have left, left him absolutely broken. But what we see is a glimpse of hope. This guy comes to his senses and realizes the only chance, the only chance this guy, this guy has to live is to go back to his father and seek repentance and repent. We pick this up in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up and came to his father. Two weeks ago, in the parable we spoke about from Luke 13 on the fig tree, we talked about repentance having two components. Two components, and hopefully you remember them. There's an internal component and an external component. Internal is where a person starts with a change of mind about who they are and the things they've done in relation to God. You come to a place where you look at the past with deep remorse, anger, and disgust at your choices and decisions. 
You acknowledge you completely fall short of God's standard and you deserve punishment. This is exactly what the younger son does. Exactly what he does. He recognizes he has no rights, no privileges, and no status. And his actions affected two relationships. He sinned against heaven and he sinned against his father. He affected God and he affected his dad. He was even willing to become a hired hand. He was in a position of royalty, in, in a sense, being under his father, under that estate and under that wealth. He wants to be a hired hand now. He's willing to give up son status. Make me as one of your hired men. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He understood his depth of despair and he was willing to take that on, admit his worthy, unworthiness, Recognize his sin against Father, sin against God, and he knew that he could, he would not even ask to be called son in that in that status ever again. That it didn't matter to him to be even called a son. He would to become a hired man. No deflection, no shift blaming, no excuses. He owned it all. He was willing to own it all. And I love this. I, this is going to be really important for, like for later on. Verse 18, if I circled all the pronouns in here, I occurs three times in verses 18 and 19. And the word my and me occurs twice. So he's got three eyes, a me and a my. I am unworthy. I am no longer. I have sinned. I'm going to go to my father. You know, make me as one of your hired men. This is personal ownership of sin and unworthiness. All in the head. He hasn't done anything yet. He's, it's internal. He's thinking these things through. Reflecting on the life of the past. And goes, I am one broken man. Without, my God, without God restoring me. And my father restoring me. This is incredibly important. For later. But we also talked that repentance has an external component. This is based on your new understanding that in response to God's mercy, you change the way you live and you do something. So repentance is obvious by the way you live for God. That's reflected in behavior. Well, that's exactly what we see in the younger son in verse 20. He got up and came to his father. He got up and came to his father. That's important. And then when he arrives, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Everything mentally rehearsed was put into practice. He physically got up, went to his dad. He, when he arrived, he verbally admitted his sin before his father. That is repentance in action. He didn't just believe in God's forgiveness. He did something to show it. And I love this because I had no intention of preaching about repentance after the fig tree. But this confirms what repentance looks like and what God requires if we want to be in relationship with Him. Now, I want you to picture the scene. Put yourself in your father's shoes. What would you do when your son returns like that? Think about it. He's insulted you greatly by the way he's asked, demanded the inheritance. He's, got us, he's left and gone as far away from you as possible. He basically flipped you the bird and said, I want nothing to do with you. He's um, squandered everything, didn't even use the money for good purposes, blew it all in the most immoral lifestyle you can imagine. 
and as a Jew has defiled himself greatly by becoming a, a pig uh, farmer, basically, or you know, working with them. Think about that. What would you do? Reject them? Send your servants to tell him to go back where he came from? Have him pay restitution? Earn his way back into the family through hard labor? Stone him. Well, that seems harsh. Not according to Israel law. Did you know in Deuteronomy 21, 18, what you're to do with a stubborn, rebellious son? But if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him into the elders at the gate of the town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, he's a loose living guy. Then all the men of this town are to stone him to death. He must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear and be afraid. Look what the father does when the son shows up. While he was still off, still a long way off in verse 20. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. These are incredibly significant details and give us great insight into the father's character. First, this man is compassionate. He wasn't in cold and indifferent to the condition of the son. He was completely sympathetic and filled with empathy for the, the son's uh, state of life. Second, how he welcomed him. He ran to his son. He didn't wait for his son to arrive. He went out to him. Again, you need to see this through a Jewish lens. According to all the commentaries I've read and, and things I've learned, it was totally disgraceful for a man of this man's nobility and status to run. Jewish men of this status did not run. Remember, they wore clothing with, of robes, right? And like long, like, like, um, like tunics and whatnot. Any show of the ankle or leg in that culture was considered shameful. We have proof of this in the scriptures. The priests were not allowed, the, the altar of the Lord was never allowed to be built with stairs had to be a ramp. Why? Because when you have stairs, you lift your leg up and you show skin. It had to be a ramp because you could keep your rope down, never show skin. I think this is the issue with uh, Saul, uh, his daughter Michael, with uh, David. Remember, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant in uh, for the first time, and he's dancing around the Ark and he's wearing priestly clothes. His wife, which is Saul's daughter, is disgusted with his behavior. Why? Here is a God in priestly, here's a man in priestly robely attire, right, who's also king. He's dancing around the ark, showing skin as the robes are flying up, and she's disgusted with his behavior. You don't show skin as a Jewish man in that culture. If this guy's running to his father as a man of nobility, what is he doing? Disgracing himself, dishonoring himself by showing skin, running out to his son. The father's actions broke all cultural norms, but he was willing to do this to, to, in order to embrace his son. Thirdly, notice the physical affection. Remember who this son's dining partners were. Right? He's eating with the pigs. He's hanging out in the troughs. No one wants to associate with him. He hasn't changed his clothes yet. Guess what he smells like? 
He didn't care how filthy he was. He doesn't care how dirty he was. He doesn't care about anything in his past. He doesn't make himself, he doesn't make his son clean himself up before he'll embrace him. None of that. The relationship trumped everything. He was going to go and embrace his son fully. No restitution, no penance, no cleaning yourself up before you come to the Father. It's a full-on embrace, him on his mercy and his grace. What an incredible picture, isn't it? Why do you think I want Stephanie to sing, How Great Is Our God? <laughs> but there's more. The father had more for this guy. It's verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of man was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Not only did the father run out to greet this guy, he threw him a huge party. And all of these things, the robe, the ring, the fattened calf, they're pictures of the father's best. They're pictures of restored honor. They're pictures of restored dignity. And a picture of full restoration. Full restoration. And, he reckon, and I love this. The father reckons this restoration and reconciliation like a resurrection. It's like a resurrection to the Father. This son of mine was dead and has now come to life. And he was lost and now he's been found. It's like a resurrection. And not physically, of course, because the son never actually died. It's a resurrection relationally. Relationally. I had no relationship and he's dead. he was dead and now he's alive. Full reconciliation. Now this is really important, church, that this idea again of being lost and being found is viewed through the first two parables in terms of context. This is about, a, this man, in other words, this young son has gone from being a sinner outside of a relationship with God to fully restored with God. That's the picture, that the party is a picture of reconciliation in terms of relationship. Now this lost and found language has been seen earlier. Look and remember in verse 7, he says, I tell you the same way, there's been more joy in heaven over once and it repents. But look at the verse before. When, when he comes home, he calls together his friends with his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Then he says, In the same way, there's joy over a sinner who repents. Look at verse 9 before verse 10. When she found her coin, she gulped together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, there's more joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. The son being lost here in verse 24 is not about a backslidden Christian. This guy was a flat-out sinner who was dead and was resurrected relationally to a relationship with the Father. This sinner has repented. He demonstrated internally first in verses 18 through his mindset and lived it out Practically, beginning in verse 20 and 21, by the way he changed his behavior. So, this scene is one big party. All because the son has returned home and is reconciled. But not everybody there in that estate 
shared the same sentiment of celebration. And we pick this up in verses 25 through 28. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Turns out the older brother here was not pleased with the father's response to the return of his younger sibling and didn't especially appreciate the fact the father would restore him so freely and easily. And so when he finds out the reason for the party, he becomes angry and is not willing to join in the celebration. I want to talk to you about this, this guy's attitude in a minute, but I don't want you to miss an important observation in this verse. And I want you to notice again the father's character. Notice the response of the older son's anger towards him. Very similar response to the younger son. Look at this in um, verse 28. When he became angry and was not willing to go in, he says, his father went, came out and began pleading with him. This is very important. How did the father find out about... Sorry, how did the older brother... Let me rephrase this here. Yeah, how did the father find out about the older brother's, his older son's actions? How did he find out? The slaves. The slaves went out to the field and said, by the way, your brother's returned and there's a party going on. The slaves must have come back to dad and said, dad, we invited the older brother. He never came. You see that? You catch that? In 26, the older brother summoned the servants to see what was going on, not the father. So the father's at home, and the servants return and say, your son won't come to the party. What's the father's response? He doesn't say this, will you go out, you get back out there, you tell that miserable son of mine to get back in here. You drag him in here if you have to. Doesn't guilt him in, doesn't strong arm him in, nothing. He goes out to plead with the son. Isn't that incredible? Think about this. Who's the guest of all? Who's the, who's the, the main attraction at the party? The father is. And he's throwing the party. It's, all about, it's about him celebrating this son that he's re, that's been rescued. So the dad's like, the guest, of, like, you know, the dad's the main host. And he's like, look at this, this is exciting. My son's back home. My son's back home. Excuse me, guests. I have to leave. How come? Well, I just got to go plead with my son in the field that won't join the party. Could you imagine the talk behind his back when he went out to do that? He has to almost dishonor and shame himself to go out to get the son. Because he can't even host anymore. And the thing is that when he arrives, again, he doesn't guilt him into trying to come back. He pleads with him. You know what plead means? You're begged. Please come, son. Please, please don't miss out on this. This is an awesome opportunity for all of us, including you. Please come back. Please, son. But his efforts aren't enough. They're not enough. Look at verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now it's hard to know if this older brother was actually believed everything he was saying. Did he really not ever break a command? Did he really never have a party with his friends? I think the point doesn't matter whether he's exaggerating or not. Because the one thing the brother wanted to make clear was that the father, he wanted the father to take note of his superior spiritual resume in comparison to his younger brother. And for his father's failure for rewarding him for that. For so many years, I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. But your brother, man, totally different story. Notice my spiritual superiority. And yet look at what you gave him, a fattened calf. You never even gave me a goat for my friends. Have you failed to recognize your failure to meet my needs? And to celebrate me based on my spiritual status and my, my uh, obedience to you, my, 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 my responsible personality? Now, I don't know if this is intentional by Jesus or not, but you know what's unbelievable about this passage? Circle the pronouns again. I have never served, I have been serving you. I have never neglected the command. Give me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Right? And he says, you've never given me a young goat, and so on and so forth. Do you know what? There's three eyes, a me and a my there. Exactly the same as the young son. Three eyes, a me and a my. Is that intentional or what? Exactly the same pronouns, repeated exactly the same amount of times. The first guy recognizes his unworthiness. He doesn't want any recognition from the father. He's fully dependent on the father for his restoration. He's completely broken and humble, and it's all about what, what, um, what he's done in, 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 in sinning against him. This guy, all of the eyes and me's and my's are about recognition of what he deserves based on his spiritual morality and his responsibility and his obedience to the Father. Totally different characteristics. Totally different people. So how does our father respond to that? He says in verse 31, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has now been found. So why is this response so important? Remember this. This is a very important thing to say. In the, and I forgot to actually even mention this. In verse 12, when the younger son asked for his inheritance, guess who also received an inheritance at the exact same time? The older brother. Look at verse 12. He divided his wealth between them. The older brother didn't ask for it. But the father was like this. Since I'm giving out my inheritance now, older son, you might as well share in the same inheritance and have yours as well. That's important. When he says this in verse 31, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. That's true. The father basically stepped back and said, you know what? You, I've given you everything I've got. Both of you have received your inheritance. And if, according to Jewish law, he received double portion to the younger son. He actually received more. What's the difference? 
The difference is this, how much time they'd spent with the father, right? He says, we had to, he says, um, uh, son, you've always been with me. Who hadn't always been with him? The younger son. He went far away from God's, or the father's standards of life and the blessings that could be there. The older brother stayed close to home. One lived, like I guess, so one, one enjoyed more privileges because of his closeness to the father. This is really important because they both got the inheritance. He's been spoiled doubly compared to the son and he didn't squander it. So at least he still got something to show for it. So the father says this, based on those things, son, we have to celebrate. I didn't treat you any differently in terms of opportunity. <laughs> I've given you a double portion, actually. And you've always lived at home. You never had to experience the pain and the brokenness that this guy did. So be grateful for that. This is why we have to throw a party and celebrate because this guy was broken and now he's restored. You never had to experience that pain the way he did. That is so critical. Understanding how the inheritance was divided between them in the beginning. You know what's sad? Despite the father's gracious efforts with the older son and all the pleading and the early inheritance, there's no evidence the older son ever joined the party. The parable ends. He missed out on what the younger brother got to experience. But he was invited. So, what do we do with this? Remember the context. 15.1 There are three parties. Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners, and the scribes and Pharisees. They're mad at Jesus for receiving sinners. For receiving sinners and eating with them. The younger brother, of course, is representative of the tax collectors and sinners. It's clear. Broken. To all degree. Rejected. Down and out. Got nothing left. Squandered everything that the father had potentially given them. In desperate need of God's grace. In desperate need of God's forgiveness. The father. Representative of God. And like the father goes to great lengths to bring reconciliation. To both the younger and older son. He's willing to dishonor himself and shame himself in order to bring the relationship to fruition. He's the initiator of reconciliation. He runs to the son. He goes out to the old, he runs to the younger son. He goes out to the, the older son. And when there's restoration and, 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 and reconciliation, he's ecstatic. He's ecstatic. The older brother, of course, is the scribes and the Pharisees. Angry. Angry that God would in, in, in Christ would embrace sinners. Right? Self-justifying. Wanting everyone to look at their spiritual resume. The older brother, I have done this and I have done this and you've never done this for me. But were the Pharisees like, thank God, Luke 18, we might even do this parable together. Thank God I am not like the other people, those tax collectors and sinners. That's exactly his words. Thank God I'm not like other people like those tax collectors. Matthew 6, 5. They would pray 
in the street corners to be seen by men. They didn't care that the prayers were going up to God. It was basically to receive praise from the people around them. This, these, this uh, older brother is exactly like that. You missed what I've done for you, Dad. And you should reward me accordingly. When we understand the parable and, obs and its observations to the fullest, it becomes very clear what this is about. So what do we learn? Lesson one. The parable teaches that Jesus came to save people from sin, and when repentance occurs, it brings God great joy. Context of 15, verse 1, verse 7, verse 10, verse 24, verse 32, all make that clear. The parable teaches that Jesus came to save people from sin, and when repentance occurs, it brings great joy. That's extremely important. What can we learn from the younger son? Now, no matter how sinful a person has lived, forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ through repentance. I don't care how much you've done to dishonor God. You can, I don't care what, you can name the most heinous crimes and sins in the world you can think of, where everyone in society would reject you. Forgiveness can be found in Jesus Christ if one repents. There's nothing too big for him not to handle. He can't take care of. The cross was not limited to the, the effects of sin or the kinds of sin. No matter how sinful. But you will not receive that forgiveness if you do not repent. You do not repent. You have to internally recognize your unworthiness before God. Like this man. You have to recognize you sinned against heaven. And you've sinned against those in your, in your life that you've affected. You recognize you're not worthy to be called a son. But through Jesus Christ's blood on the cross, that's what makes you worthy. And then you demonstrate, you get up. And you do something. You live your life in response to Jesus Christ. You don't live your life your way. You have to go, how does God want me to live now? The only way you're going to know that is to seek the word of God. You will never know how to live for God unless you go into the Word of God. He will teach you how to live your life. Parenting, money, relationships, conflict, forgiveness. How to view politics. Everything is in the Bible. Lesson three. What do we learn from the older son? Well, an invitation to a relationship with God is always open. One will not receive it based on one's own religious or moral code. He went out to plead with him. It's an open invitation to the party. But listen, you didn't, you're not going to get in because you uh, never broke my commands or you never neglected a command or you, you never, you know, all these things. You don't get in through that, all the years of service. This is so, mag this is incredibly important for us as well to understand this. In our culture, our morality and the religious rituals of the church is what makes us right. If a church says, I have to do this, this, and this in terms of baptism, communion, whatever it may be, confirmation, and someone's, you know, they think, well, I'm good with God. Not according to this. Repentance is the only way to the party. It's the only way. I'm a good person. I've done good things. Yes, you might have, but you've also done some pretty bad things. 
That's the problem with everybody with moral code. Yes, we've all done good things, but we've all done some things we're not too proud of, and God so sees those things, and the cross of Christ was to deal with those things. We get in to the party. We enter into that relationship. We're reconciled to God through His initiation and through our repentance. And finally, lesson four, we serve and have an amazing God. <laughs> this guy's compassionate. Despite the life that we live, he will embrace us. He'll kiss us. He'll hug us. Doesn't matter if we've been with swine. He'll embrace us. He runs out to us. He initiates reconciliation. He goes to great lengths to, plead, to get us into the kingdom. He pleads with us. He gives us the gospel message over and over. Allows us to live a long life. Doesn't kill us. Lets us live like long, full lives. Giving us time to repent and to know him. This is an amazing God we have and serve. He wants us all to be part of the party. And he goes to great lengths through the cross of Christ to bring us there. Amen. Finish with this. I wonder if Paul had this in mind. I wonder if Paul read the prodigal son and thought, I'm going to write a verse about the prodigal son in my letter to the Corinthians. All this is from God, who reconciled to us himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Right? First, I love that. First one, not counting people's sins against them. Who's that? The younger brother. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. Who's that? The older brother. I'm pleading with you. <laughs> right? He says, be reconciled to the God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might have become the righteousness of God. The younger son says, listen, I got nothing to offer you in terms of restoration of relationship. I'm, I'm relying fully on your reinstating of me into the family and into the estate for, for me to have any place in, in your life. And the father says, I'll embrace you on my merit. I'll give you my best ring. I'll give you my robe. I'll give you sandals. I'll give you food. I'll throw a party and invite all my friends. Christ became sin for us so that we could be reconciled to God.